My guest today is Lucien Camp, renowned brand specialist, now with his own company, Lucien Camp Consulting. Lucien began his career as an advertising copywriter, writing mostly TV commercials for things you could eat, drink, wear and drive. Next, he took a job as a creative director, not really noticing that the agency specialised in financial accounts. Fortunately, he found those quite interesting and went on to establish two agencies of his own working in this area. After selling the second one in 2008, he set up on his own with a one-man band consulting business, still specialising in financial services and offering brand, marketing and communications advice. He speaks, writes and blogs extensively on these subjects and in 2018 published his first book on financial services marketing called No Small Change, co-written with Metro Bank founder Anthony Thompson. Lucien is a highly experienced marketeer and brand specialist. I wanted to talk to him about the relationship between brand and customer experience and get his thoughts on how, when developing brands and propositions, you can ensure that the brand gets infused into the customer experience and on the flip side how customer experience can be aligned to ensure that an organization's brand promise can be delivered at every touch point. He describes himself as the entire workforce of his company so let's hear what the entire workforce had to say. Hi Lucien, good afternoon and thank you so much indeed for coming along and uh, agreeing to take part in this podcast. Really good to see you. It's been a long time since we've had a proper chat so I'm, I'm really looking forward to it in that respect, let alone the subject matter that we're going to cover this afternoon. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. As I said in the introduction, you're the entire workforce of Lucien Camp Consulting, that's how you describe yourself. And I know that you've had a, a long and distinguished career in several of the finest agencies in the UK starting life as a copywriter and then holding several positions as creative director in various different agencies. And so something I ask all my guests really is just perhaps you could just start off by telling us your story in your own words and how did you get to this point in your career today? Okay, thanks for that, Neil. And uh, thanks for inviting me onto the program. It's great to be here. Okay, potted history. As you say, I started off as an advertising copywriter, the kind of job you do when you can't really do and if you can't really get a proper job, a long time ago, working mostly in you know, very big and relatively well-known agencies on accounts for products that you can eat or drink or drive, hopefully not drinking or driving on the same day, uh, consumer products of one sort or other. And somewhere along the line while I was there, I discovered what I've always described as the subtle pleasures of financial services. I found myself quite... Uh, quite interested in some of the challenges of communicating financial propositions to the market. So after a few years of the uh, consumer products, I went to what was then a, a very successful, fast-growing specialist financial services agency. I went there as, as creative director, so I got to be in charge of the creative side. And, and I enjoyed that, and, and the financial thing kind of got its, got its hooks into me. So after that, I was there three or four years, and then I left to set up the first of my own agencies, which we set up as a specialist in financial services, not really doing anything else. And that went pretty well. But that had one sort of major flaw, which is that we set it up as a subsidiary of a, of a big, well-known agency. And the drawback was that when we were successful, they took nearly all the money which I soon came to realize represented a bit of a failure of our negotiating technique. 
at the outset. So it seemed to me that the thing to do from that was to go again, but with an agency which we would actually own ourselves and, and not have to give parent money. So we set up a second agency, also specialising in financial services, which we owned all of. That went pretty well. We sold that in 2000 and, I don't know, was it 2007, 2008. And people say, oh, that was very clever of you because that was just before the meltdown. How clever of you to sell just before the meltdown. And, and that was clever of me, except that most of the proceeds were paid on what's called an earnout deal which depends on how your business performs in the three years after you've sold it. And uh, being 2007, 8, 9, our business performed absolute rubbish in the three years after we'd sold it. So my timing wasn't quite as clever as I'd hoped. But anyway, be that as it may, I, having done that and sold that second agency, I thought, you know, do I want to go again? Do I want to sort of start again from scratch and build something up? And I thought, no, not really. I've done it twice and it's been good fun. But really, I quite like a bit of a simpler life now. So I set up the uh, consulting business, which, as you say, Lucy and Cam Consulting, I proudly describe myself as the entire workforce. It is just me. There isn't anyone else. And uh, you know, there never will be. And that's been going a little over 10 years now. And uh, that's been great. It's a very nice, simple business. I don't have any internal meetings. How good is that? I mean, from literally all year... I don't have any internal meetings, and I get to keep all the money. So that's been tremendous. And uh, basically, I've been doing that now for a little over 10 years and uh, wandering hopelessly around the financial services industry, looking for people who would like some, uh, some advice on their branding or on their marketing, or also who would like some copy written, because that sort of copywriting string to my bow is still very much there as well. And uh, that's gone. That's gone very well, really. I've been very happy with that. And uh, so that, that's what I'm doing to this day. Fantastic. And um, you, you talk there about a lot of specialism around financial services, and uh, use the terminology I don't I've ever heard before, which is subtle pleasures of financial services, which I think are def definitely very subtle at times. But uh, what kind of clients do you deal with, Lucy? Who, who would be your your typical Lucy and Camp Consulting client, both in terms of the company, but who who would you be working with within the organisation? That's a good question. I mean, in, in terms of the nature of the, the business. I suppose when you're when you're a small firm and you, you can't get much smaller than being a one-man band, you know, typically you either work for small parts of big companies or you work for sort of the whole of smaller companies. And you know, a friend of mine's always said that if you come across a you know a very small little agency of some sort or other that you've never heard of, invariably it'll have British Airways on its client list. But on closer examination, it'll be British Airways cargo. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, very true. Because the main account will be at Saatchi and Saatchi. So, uh, so it's a bit like that. I mean, I do. I have some clients that are, you know, great big companies, you know, big, a uh, couple of the big banks, big building society, uh, insurers, quite strong asset managers, but also a lot of smaller companies, including recently, you know, a lot of fintechs. I mean, there is so much activity in the fintech space and people needing help with marketing and branding. Uh, and also, actually, also in the advice world, Advice land has been, uh, you know, changing at great pace mm. recently. So uh, I've worked a lot with uh, advice firms. In, in terms of who, it varies more than you might think. I mean, you might assume that doing the sorts of things I do 
it would be mostly marketeers, I suppose, heads of marketing. I suppose that's probably most often the case. But equally, it certainly can be kind of C-suite management, especially in smaller companies. Quite often you find that, that you know, CEOs, MDs, you know, take quite a close interest in, in brand and, and, and communications issues. You know, it can be uh, occasionally HR, although we'll talk about that perhaps a bit later, not as often as perhaps it should be. And then companies have all sorts of, uh, you know, job titles of one sort or another. Uh, quite often, people who are, you know, involved with the whole business of customer experience would be yeah. my clients as well. So it, 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 you know, it varies more than you might think, is the answer. Yeah, okay. No, fantastic. I think that's great because we can dive into um, some of the kind of, you know, the way in which companies are structured and how they think about brand in a moment. And we can we can sort of think about that. But I think it's useful context to, to set the scene with that. You've written a lot. You've spoken a huge amount about branding. Uh, and I don't think there's much uh, you haven't written about it really as a subject. But I'd love to um, just start to try and align on a few words and concepts because I think like all aspects of business, people create their own language around these things and often use things interchangeably. So if we could sort of, before we dive into the customer-related aspects, um, what do you think constitutes a brand? Great question. And I think you're right to answer to ask it because, because I think it is, you know, a notoriously slippery term. And I still think if we put 10 people in a room and I asked them to give an answer to that, you know, we really would get, I think, 10, you know, significantly different answers. And, uh, you know, I think, I think that that's a problem. I mean, I, I would have thought, I would have hoped that by now, particularly in financial services, that, that I, would have thought, I would have hoped that more consistency would have arisen around some of these terms. But, uh, but I don't really think it has. I mean, I, I think, you know, I mean, my, the definition I would go for, which, you know, to me best combines, you know, being reasonably brief uh, and reasonably clear would be something along the lines of, the sum total of what target audiences think, feel, and know about a a product, service, or business. The sum total of what people think, feel, and know constitutes the brand, I think. Yeah, okay, no, that that makes perfect sense. And what do you think uh, the kind of the facets, if you like, that go towards making up a successful or an effective brand? So to really kind of bring that definition to life, what are the kind of some parts, if you like, that, that we should be thinking about here? Well, I mean, people use all sorts of, uh, of, of tools to, to define brands. They use all sorts of processes to get them to their definitions. And some of them, you know, are extremely, you know, complicated and and labyrinthine and, and, you know, tortuous, really. And so as a result, you know, personally, I'm very much a believer in, in the simplest tools and structures and processes that I can think of. I'm almost embarrassed to admit that my favorite sort of brand development tool, uh, you know, is still the good old brand pyramid, which does suffer from rather a silly name because it isn't a pyramid at all. It's just a triangle. But apart from that, you know, I still think that uh, to me that is the simplest and clearest way to define the essentials of a of a brand. Now, people carve up brand pyramids into all sorts of different layers, but again, I, I go for a particularly simple take on the pyramid where you divide the thing up into into five slices, and reading from from the bottom up, you define at the, at the lowest level, you define the rational benefits 
that you want people to perceive that your brand has to offer. At the next level, you define the emotional benefits you want people to see in your brand. At the next level, the brand personality. How does the brand come across to people as a personality? At the penultimate level, the values. What values is the brand seen to live by? And up at the top level, uh, a notoriously tricky thing called the, the brand essence, which I think is more or less indistinguishable, really, from a corporate purpose, and which aims to summarize in just a handful of words, you know, what, what it's all about and what we're trying to do here. And those are the five levels that make up the pyramid. I'm, I'm pretty tough as well on rationing the amount of content that I'm happy to see go into a pyramid. Again, I think it's very easy to stuff a pyramid full of all sorts of good stuff, all good stuff, you know, all fine, but just too much. So that, again, your chances of anyone understanding what you're trying to do, you know, are virtually nil. For example, I'm never happy to see in a brand pyramid more than three intended brand values. I think three is a good number of values. I think if there are three brand values, there's a reasonable chance that the people working in the organization will actually understand and know what the values are. Mm. I saw one uh, piece of brand development work done in a, a big composite insurance company, which had come up with a values matrix, which had in it 256 values. <laughs> it had a 16 by 16 grid with a, a value in every box. And they're all good values, you know, they're all perfectly all right. But, but your chance of persuading your, your, your people to live 256 values, mm. I mean, I don't know, I can only assume that perhaps the agency involved charged by the value. <laughs> Did a better financial construct than some of the ones you negotiated in selling your business by the sound of it. So yeah, absolutely. Okay, no, very amusing. No, I mean, that's very interesting. Thanks for sharing the, uh, the brand pyramid. It very much aligns to a lot of the conversations I've had actually in this series, which is all about when you're designing a customer experience, which is also in itself supposedly holistic across the organization in terms of how a customer sees you from the outside in, you know, starting with purpose and values and kind of like digging into that. It's, you know, clearly the way in which you're thinking about brand totally aligns with that, which is a bit of luck and good news because it means we can press on with our conversation in context, which is good. Again, just to sort of finally bring into life, can you give us an example of something that you would regard as a great brand so that we can really kind of go, okay, yeah, I understand that. And, and that makes a lot of sense. Well, again, I suppose, you know, I, I tend to think in terms of the financial services world, mostly because I think that there's, there's more to be to be learned from, from other. I think that in many ways, the, the great sort of divide that exists in, in the world of branding is, is probably, I still think, between service brands and product brands. And, and I know that that's a slightly false distinction, because I know that that virtually all providers of products want to develop a, a service layer that wraps around the products and makes the experience more than just a product experience. Mm. And vice versa, a lot of service providers, you know, want to productize the services that they offer mm. in order to be able to offer uh, definable product propositions that people stick their hands into their pockets for. So I know it's a slightly false distinction. But, but nevertheless, at the end of the day, there are service brands that are largely delivered by people and product brands that are largely delivered by things. And, and the challenges of, of building and maintaining and developing both, you know, are 
in many ways, still very different. It'll have to be, you know, involves some very different work to, to do it well. And, you know, the great examples that come to mind, the great well-known examples, you know, are in many ways, I suppose, the obvious ones. I put a big emphasis on brands that have distinctiveness and differentiation about them. Mm. And I think, again, that's perhaps a topic we'll come back to in this conversation. And, and I'm particularly interested in brands that are able to achieve a great deal of perceived differentiation, even when the sort of hard, tangible differentiation is, is quite limited. And so, you know, I like to, you know, I could easily look at a giant brand like Apple, for example, and say, you know, Apple's basically components in boxes, you know, but the amount of brand magic and mystique that Apple have been able to, to build around the contents of those boxes, you know, through a consistent emphasis on what their values are, and what their difference is, and how they communicate those things. And it, it always looks easy in hindsight. Mm. Building a great brand always looks easy in hindsight, but doing it looking forward is, is not easy. And that's been yeah. a great job. Yeah. Any great financial services brands that spring to mind? You talked about Apple there, but um... I, th- I think there are great. I think there. Are, I think there are great financial services brands. But most of them, you know, are great almost by accident. Right. Um, have achieved sort of, they've had sort of greatness thrust upon them. I've got to say, partly as a, as a very happy customer, but I'm a big fan of the Coots brand in banking. I think Coots is a fabulous brand. I think it's a great brand in how it's perceived and, and recognized and, and known the degree of distinctiveness and awareness that Coots has. By the way, without any, uh, expensive, you know, advertising campaigns mm. or anything such as that. And also in terms of the quality and consistency of the service that Coots offers, I think Coots is a fabulous brand, which delivers a fantastic customer experience and a load of differentiation and has been doing so for the best part of 300 years. It may well be, for all I know, uh, that the, the people within Coots, you know, use the word brand very rarely. They may not necessarily think fundamentally in terms of brand, but in terms of delivering what I would call a brand experience, you know, I think they do that wonderfully well. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So it's the product, it's the service, it's the wraparound, those sort of things that differentiate completely. Yeah. Yeah. It's the guy in the red frock coat at the bottom of the escalator. There is no other bank that has a, a guy in a red frock coat at the bottom of the escalator. And if anyone else ever did have a guy in a frock coat, the escalator they fired him long ago uh, in a bid to become more accessible <laughs> yeah yeah understood yeah okay good stuff so uh, i think we're clear there on you know what you mean by a brand and you talked about the pyramid and i think that's that's a, a very good way of sort of mentally structuring this i mean you must have been involved in lots and lots of branding exercises from startups and rebrandings and all those sorts of things i mean can you sort of bring to life because when, when you talk about a rebrand the natural reaction for most people is oh my god you know it's going to cost millions and the logo might be slightly italic at the end of it and that's the end of it kind of stuff you know that that's the sort of if you like the, the very poor reputation that might be generated off the back of um, perhaps least successful ones but in your mind when you do a, a successful branding exercise or a rebranding exercise how, how do you go about it just in high level i'm sure there's lots to it but if we could dig into what's underneath the alchemy that apparently appears on the outside of that, how do you go about doing it? Okay, I, I think the, the, the first thing I'd like to say is probably, well, it, it would be a very controversial thing to say, um, except that all it's doing 
is kind of disqualifying me from business that I was never going to get anyway. <laughs> um, but let me say straight away, I, I don't believe it's possible to backfit a strong, distinctive, clear, positive brand into a big, old, complicated legacy organization, which has got to where it's got to without any trace of brand consciousness. I don't think you can do it. I don't think you can do it. I don't think you can take a, you know, a big banking group or, a, you know, a big insurance group with, you know, multiple business units, multiple sites, multiple product areas, complicated management teams, you know, fiefdoms all around the, the country, probably all around the world, even with, you know, the enthusiastic support, you know, of, of, of the C-suite CEO. I don't think it's possible to say, you know, we are going to stand for innovation or whatever the hell it is across our business and our brand is going to differentiate itself in, in, the, in the marketplace on that basis. It's, it's not doable. It's too hard. We're, 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 we're too far down, you know, a, a, a more um, fragmented, uh, you know, route. And I think, you know, if you, if you claim either as a, a management team or, you know, as a brand consultancy, that you can backfit a brand into a situation like that. I think you're kidding yourself. And I think all the experiences, if you look at those kinds of firms, that they make, you know, valiant attempts. And about three years later, they give up and start making another valiant attempt, having really not really got anywhere at all and having not really built any differentiation in the market that anyone can recognize. Yeah, I, I think a prerequisite for a brand in an area like financial services is a, a business unit that is homogenous enough and coherent enough and, and, and probably, you know, kind of geographically concentrated enough that you've got a chance of getting a bunch of brand ideas to actually stick. And otherwise, I don't think you've got a chance. Now, all of that is infinitely easier if you're dealing with something which in one way or another is a startup. And whether that's a startup from scratch, you know, a greenfield, startup or whether it's a startup you know carving a new business unit or a business entity out of an existing company then you're in with a good chance you're in with a very good chance i was much involved a few years ago in the launch of the, the more than direct insurance brand for, for royal sun alliance and royal sun was a you know 270 year old you know legacy company without really any sort of brand consciousness or brand attitude in the business at all but in a way that worked in our favor because those of us who were involved with more than we had the, the third floor as i recall at royal sun hq portion and we wanted the third floor to be an incredibly different experience from the first second fourth and fifth floors and we also had the the other you know essential prerequisite for, for brand building, which was a, a managing director and a marketing director who were absolutely determined to build, you know, a strong and distinctive brand in the market that we had. It was quite interesting. Once, shortly after the brand was launched, we launched a whole bunch of tracking metrics to see what customers thought of the brand, how they perceived it. And we benchmarked it against a bunch of others. But obviously, we also benchmarked our brand against the parent, against what's on Alliance. And I think it was after 15 months that we overtook Royal Sun Alliance on all 15 metrics 
and they'd had 270 years. So it was quite interesting to see just how quickly you can move. Yeah. You know, if you if you if you adopt a genuinely you know brand centric approach. And that brings me neatly onto if you like where customer experience and brand meet because. You know, I certainly know from conversations we've had in the past, you know, you, you sort of see them almost very much as, as as bedfellows. And I just wanted to understand really from your perspective is to what extent does customer experience define the brand or the other way around? And I guess the answer might be you can cover it from both ways, really. But I, I'm guessing from what you've just said is that really to get a good, authentic customer experience that's aligned to the purpose of the organization, essentially what you've got to be doing is is playing out what that brand should look and feel like against those ideas, those values, et cetera, in everything that you do. Would that be right? I mean, how, how do they come together? Yeah, I think that is right. And, and, and we come back to a point I was making a few minutes ago about the distinction between brands that are largely delivered by products and brands that are largely delivered by services. And, and, and the point here, I guess, is a point about authenticity, really. I mean, a long time, a very long time ago, I worked on a, a range of uh, Italian ready meals that had a tremendous Italian image with uh, lots of uh, Italian cues in the advertising and the packaging and the delivery, people in, you know, Lambretta scooters, you know, driving around piazzas in Rome, throwing slices of pizza at each other in a very uh, Italian fashion, uh, which spoke of tremendous, you know, Continental, I was going to say savoir faire, but that's not right, is it? <laughs> um, not, not quite. Yeah, you know what I mean? And that was fine. And I'm sure that, you know, the, the people sort of bought these products as, as in fact, they were made by a, a subsidiary of, of the American, you know, Mars Corporation, but a plant in Southall in Middlesex in an area that was, that was very heavily ethnic Sikh. And the workforce were consisted almost entirely of Sikhs. I don't think there were any Italians there at all. I didn't remember any Lambrettas in the car park. Um, but it didn't matter because the, 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 the experience, you know, you know, was pretty much confined to the, you know, the packaging and the advertising. And provided the packaging and the advertising looked Italian enough, you know, that the brand was basically credible. I think we're a little bit more suspicious about about that kind of thing these days. But but nevertheless, I mean. The point generally, I think, sort of stands. And in people businesses, you know, where, where, where the brand is delivered, but you know, by people, that that won't work. You know, that just will not work. I mean, if your staff are all Sikhs, you can't pretend they're Italians. Yeah. And by the way, I mean, there's, there's an issue there about um, you know, the delivery of of service as we move towards the, the digital age. That's all, all changing again. Again, we may come to that later. Mm. But uh, I, I don't know. I, I think something which concerns me is that I think I may be wrong about this. I may have too sort of black and white a view of it, but I have a feeling that, you know, on the whole, the worlds of customer experience and the world of brand have been managed on the whole too separately for, from each other mm. for too long. And, and something that really should be, you know, two sides of one coin has actually been sort of two more or less parallel tracks that have never quite come together in a lot of organizations. And, and I think that that's a huge mistake. And I think that organizations which have concerned themselves hugely about the, the quality of their customer experience have not concerned themselves anything like enough 
about the distinctiveness of their customer experience. Yeah, and I'm guessing in financial services particularly, so let's just focus in on the service-based thing, so so I'm thinking about the people element of this. It strikes me that when you strip down, and well, it strikes me. I mean, I think it's it's fact. You know, if you if you strip down a life assurance product to its basic parts, given the the regulations and the way in which the sort of if you like the constructs that sit around those products are, they make them plain vanilla. At the end of the day, there's very little you can actually do to the actual core product itself to make it different from another, other than maybe sort of a few different features or what have you, or indeed in in you know, current accounts and those sorts of things. And how do you create that differentiation um, in brands where the actual core is is very hard to actually differentiate in practice? I mean, it, is it a blend of customer experience? Is it something else? Is it the personality? What What is it that in your experience, when you're trying to create a differentiation, what is the kind of the so-called secret sauce, if you like, that, that, that goes in there, if indeed there is such a thing? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that in many ways that the, the, the sort of Cinderella aspect of brand, brand development is is largely around the question of brand personality. I, I think in many ways that when we distinguish between brands, and again, particularly in service businesses, we, we often distinguish in our minds between brands that, that, that have what, what seem to us to be very different personalities in the way that they come across to us. And yeah, I mean, probably an experience, I mean, an example, you know, which I would quote again, a brand I've been very heavily involved with for a very long time, uh, almost, yeah, since, well, since really since it was launched uh, about 30 years ago, is my rather controversial friends at the uh, financial advice giant St. James's Place. And uh, SJP is, you know, now by a considerable distance the, the leading firm in that field over 4,000 advisors, but the firm is, in fact, only 30 years old. I mean, it was launched in 1991. I mean, it looks as if it's been around forever, but it hasn't. But what SJP does isn't really fundamentally any different from what any other financial advice, firms do, uh, financial advice firm does. But uh, right back at the beginning, I remember having a, a discussion with the, the management team when we were trying to define the brand promise we, we did use the brand pyramid, but we got quite caught up on trying to define the brand promise at one stage. And I remember sort of saying something then, which I think was a valuable thing to say, which acted as a bit of a, a guiding light uh, in terms of the personality of the firm ever since. And I said, the brand promise of St. James's Place, or actually it was then J. Rothschild Assurance, the brand promise is that it turns new money into old. <laughs> yeah, and that, that's not a that's not a form of words for literal use in so many words externally, but as a guiding light for how the business should behave, for what the brochures should look like, for you know the tone of voice in the correspondence, you know the kinds of uh, hospitality events that should be held, mm. kind of hotels that we should use for our investment seminars, as a kind of guiding light for the business. It's all there. That's that's kind of all you need to know mm. to build a unique personality in the market. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, I mean, I've heard things like that called an organising thought before. I mean, it's a sort of like such. It's, it's a kernel of an idea that if you can use it to kind of push out into the organisation for a certain target audience that you believe that's going to appeal to, then that's that begins to give you that distinctiveness and personality. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, I think that's exactly right. Yeah, interesting. And 
when you sort of start to move into the world of digital and and so moving away from you know sort of like face-to-face type uh, manifestations of brands and things like that when you start to get into brands that rely heavily on the internet brands that have a lot of social media activity wrapped around them which you know comes with the ability to communicate very widely but at the same time places a certain amount of power in the hands of the individual who is consuming that product or service because obviously they can find out lots of stuff about it. They can look at competitors and they can hear very clearly what other people are, are saying about it. When you start to to get into that, how does that kind of blend with brand management? And, and how do you, if you're uh, somebody worrying about the brand, how do you start to, to bring that together with marketing communications and manage the brand effectively? Are there some specific tools and techniques that you should bring to bear there? Well, I think there certainly are a whole lot of new challenges and differences in in priorities, uh, things that perhaps were less important become more important and, and, and vice versa. For example, you know, I think one of the surprising things about the internet really, which as a writer is something I rather appreciate, is the enormous you know, importance of writing in the digital world and, and, and particularly of, of tone of voice. You know, who would have thought, you know, that the, the ancient art of copywriting, I mean, it's not that long ago, but in the world of, you know, marketing, communication, advertising and so forth, you know, we were all being told, you know, writing is dead. You know, these days it's all about the visual image. You know, we don't need any words, we just need the right image. You know, how untrue is that? I mean, it, you know, there are trillions of words being churned out onto the internet, you know, every day in areas of, you know, content marketing of one sort or another. Uh, in the communication of financial propositions. You know, there's, there's an appetite for writing, you know, like there's, there's, there's never been before. I suspect that in, in the financial services world, which is my world, I suspect that more new words are being published by financial institutions in a year than previously in any 20-year, yeah. you know, period with the amount of content that, uh, that that's that's going out there. So, so that's, a, you know, an example of a, priority which is infinitely much more important than it was just a few years ago and there are obviously other challenges too i mean uh, of which the obvious one is that you know the digital world is uh, is a dialogue not a monologue and financial institutions particularly you know are, are not good at the idea of of a dialogue with their their customers and their marketplace that that doesn't come naturally to them the idea that, that the customers might want to to answer back and by the way, the regulator doesn't understand that idea very well either, and that makes it extremely difficult to maintain a dialogue with with customers. So, so there, so there are a whole lot of, of of new challenges. But, but I'm not very, you know, confident that many financial institutions have entirely, you know, got their heads around those challenges yet. And in saying that, you know, I very much include the huge swarm of recently launched, you know, digital fintech businesses of one sort or another that have appeared in great flocks in areas like robo-advice and direct insurance and uh, digital banking and other areas where vast numbers of new organizations have arrived. But I'm concerned that, that the fintech world is not dominated by financial people. It certainly isn't dominated by actuaries in the way the old world was, but it's dominated by something almost as bad, which is CIOs, which is technology, sorry, 
It's dominated by CTOs. It's dominated by technology officers. And technology officers are about as far from, you know, brand uh, and distinctiveness as, as actuaries are. And, uh, you know, I look at, you know, I, I spent half a day recently looking, reviewing every, you know, robo-advisor currently, you know, promoting itself on the internet. And I couldn't tell the difference between any of them. They're identical. There's a sort of fintech speak that right. uh, is, is universal, you know, across the piece. And, and you know, it's all quite uh, modern and sort of clear, but it's got no character, distinctiveness or interest or reward, you know, at all. I, I'm very disappointed that this, this new world of financial services has emerged in the last five or ten years, and it's so totally boring. Right. Interesting point. And and so, okay, so distinctiveness comes through personality, I guess, is the message I'm, I'm hearing loud and clearly there. It's having a definition and an understanding of what that means so that that can pervade everything that you do. And I'm, I suppose what was in my mind when you were talking there is if, if I think of you know, whether you like the brands or dislike the brands, some of the aggregator, the insurance aggregator brands, and we might as well name a couple, you know, the confused.coms, the, the meerkats with the compare the market. I guess they have created a personality and in some cases actual personalities in terms of furry speaking animals and things like that, which, which have, have created quite strong consumer brands. But again, obviously, underpinning that is the promise of what it can do, which is facilitated by technology, but um, obviously isn't the technology itself. So that would be a good example of a, a brand that hasn't done that. I, th I think that's true. I mean, I, I mean to, on the one hand, you know, I, I, I'm impressed, by the way, that, that that sector has kind of emerged, you know, in, in fairly recent years and, you know, is, is still, you know, really more or less the only big new sector to have emerged in financial services in the last, I don't know, 30 years, you know, in the digital era. And, and it's you know, kind of surprising that there aren't more others. But, but here is a sector that didn't exist 30 years ago yeah. and has now got at least four you know, great big grown-up brands in it with very high levels of awareness and very high levels of business. And I'm impressed by that, and I think it's great. And I'm, you know, not least because it tells, it shows us what is possible. So, you know, good news. I, I have to say on the flip side that my perception would be that, that what happened in that sector was that it was all going quite well until the meerkats came along. Meerkats are great. You know, meerkats are not quite as interesting as they were, but the meerkats are great. But they threw everyone else into a complete panic of, like, looking for their own meerkat. Mm. And the other brands in the sector have been changing advertising agencies quite frequently and sort of looking for an alternative to the meerkats and not succeeding in finding one. And, and actually, the arrival of the meerkats has knocked the whole sector rather off balance and, and sort of got it a bit sort of introvertedly looking for kind of meerkat rivals you know what's what's our meerkat it happened a generation ago with direct lines red telephone the red telephone for direct line was so influential that everyone else in the market was suddenly you know saying can we have a blue telephone or you know what about a red fax machine mm. you know whatever because because one brand came up with the property so so far ahead of what everyone else was doing and that mm. the whole business of marketing you know, turned into a, a kind of game of catch-up, which I think has been somewhat unhelpful. But still, on the whole, I, I think that the, the growth of the of the aggregators has been a you know has been a success story on the whole, which is uh, 
good to see. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I suppose it's not a flip side, it's just an observation, certainly from some of the stuff I've read recently. And, you know, it's certainly regulators considering insurance pricing and, and how renewals are done and that sort of thing. You know, beware the brand that becomes so powerful that it costs quite a bit of money to maintain and therefore it almost usurps the original purpose of the thing, which was to, to save money in, in making comparisons <laughs> because obviously someone's got to pay for it, I guess. Yeah. I mean, you know, what, what's interesting about that is that, you know, arguably, you know, the success of the aggregators, you know, reflects, you know, the lack of success of most of the providers in, in building brands that were distinctive enough mm. to escape from that kind of commoditization. Yeah, I mean, aggregation only works, you know, in a, in a largely commoditized, commoditized market. If, mm. if if the providers had stronger and more distinctive brands of their own, they wouldn't lend themselves well to just ranking by price. Just a couple of more areas, really, just just explore briefly. But um, we, you touched on HR and you touched on customer experience and where this stuff gets managed within businesses. And and I mean, a lot of the work that we do often revolves around how does an organization set itself up to deliver the desired experience that it's trying to deliver. So be that a customer experience driven project, or indeed it might be that, you know, that the organization is having to reshape for another of the other reasons, such as a, a, you know, a merger or indeed, you know, cost saving, et cetera, et cetera. And very often within that, what we concern ourselves with is how do you best configure the organization to, uh, to deliver this stuff. And you mentioned something quite interesting a little while ago about HR being quite a long way from from brand and, you know, customer experience quite often being separated from it. I'd be interested in your your thoughts around that, really. What, what, what was behind that observation? What were you getting at there? Well, I'm sure that the practice, you know, of what, what goes on varies hugely between one one business and another. And, you know, it would be wrong to, to generalize. On, on the whole, in my experience, you know, I, I would say that, that the relations between people in the organization responsible for brand and HR have been often quite distant and fairly often quite hostile. Okay. And, and not very often very close. That, that may be terribly unfair, I and mean, I've got no statistical evidence, you know, to say that. And it may be that I've just happened to have worked for a few, you know, organizations where that happens to be true. But on the whole, it's all sweetness and light. I mean, let me, I know I'm not supposed to be interviewing you, but let me ask you as a customer experience man that question. I mean, is that fair or do you think that the relations on the whole are, are better than I'm suggesting? No, I, I think historically, certainly huge unconscious disconnection between the two if i can put it that way two big words there but i think you know certainly wasn't by design that they were kept very much apart but you would categorize something like hr as very much an internal function that kind of sat somewhere way behind the scenes in the back office as it might have been called or even supporting the back office and the front office and and not visible i think what i would say is and you know i can think of an organization we're working with at the moment the life sciences sector where we're working on a project where very much the HR function at a group level is is considering what is it that we stand for? What is our purpose? How do we connect our people to that purpose and our, our sort of vision, if you like, of what we want to be in a way that enables them in their jobs on a day-to-day basis to almost instinctively deliver the customer experience that we want them to align to those values and those principles. And, and so I, I see pockets of it emerging, but I would agree with you generally that 
on the whole in the past it's it's been very very disconnected and the idea of a a brand manager and an hr manager working side by side on stuff wouldn't necessarily have been top of mind definitely so no that would be my perception i remember some years ago being slightly on the fringes of a big branding initiative in one of the big high street banks which was a you know a really major initiative with a great deal of money spent and uh which kind of culminated in a, a series of, of roadshows in, in theatres and exhibition halls and so on, all, all around the country, which put tens of thousands of people through a kind of brand experience day uh, with a great deal of, you know, razzmatazz. And uh, I think we have the National Exhibition Centre in Birmingham and uh, big venues like that. Uh, and it was all quite uplifting, I suppose, as these things go. And then kind of that was it. And, and after that, that was the end of that initiative. There was a load of consumer advertising. But the idea that, that, that HR actually had a role to play in sort of internalizing, you know, that brand activity and all that stuff we all talk about, you know, how the brand metrics have to be part of the appraisal system and, and all of that. I mean, no, none of that happened. I mean, the initiative was dead by the time people got off the, got off the coaches back from the NEC. Yeah. No, you know, no, you're right. There was just no serious attempt. To, to give the initiative a life. No. So what you're saying, and, and again, I wholeheartedly agree, if this is what you're saying, is, is going back to your pyramid, you know, that almost the role of HR is to kind of smooth that through the organisation and maybe even help with the hiring of people that are aligned to that and, and bringing it to life on a day-to-day basis, If you're particularly if you're talking about a service business. Yeah, and, and, and some do. I mean, I expect there will probably be some people listening to this uh, this podcast will say, what's he talking about? We've been doing that for years. Yeah. You know, that, that's the way we work. I mean, what, what do you think is the point of having a, a brand definition if you don't hire to it and appraise to it? But I mean, believe me, an awful lot of organizations don't. No, absolutely. And is there any best practice organizational models that you've seen where you thought, wow, that's clever. That's a really interesting way of organizing yourselves to try and deal with this problem. Do you know, I, 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 don't, I mean, yes, but only just extremely obvious ones. I mean, and I'm thinking about the sort of heyday of, of more than, and I still think that the, the heyday of more than, which ended sadly, but was probably the best example of an organization determined to kind of live its brand that I've ever probably worked for. And you know, one of the things that, that, that we did in the first couple of years was, I think it was every quarter, or was it half yearly? I can't remember. We used to do a thing where we took the main big meeting space that portion and pinned up every bit of internal and external communication that had come out of the firm in the last three months and did a open evening where everyone could come in and see everything that had been done and do a short presentation do you know drinks and snacks and then do a you know talk about you know how all this activity lived up to the was, was projecting the brand values externally and why we'd done this television commercial like that and what the promise made in this, you know, and just using the external communication to just leverage internal behavior rather than just send around an email saying our new commercial goes on air tonight. Yeah. You know, find it in center, the center break in Coronation Street. Yeah. Use it as, you know, a really powerful bit of brand reinforcement within yeah. the business. And I, I think that those sessions, people enjoyed those. Yeah. Yeah. They were well worth doing, I think. Yeah, that makes sense. It makes sense. Yeah, no, food for thought. I mean, as you say, sometimes the most obvious stuff is is the most impactful. And um, I, I think I would concur that anything that you can do to 
connect everyone at every level within the organization, particularly those that spend their days trying very hard to, to service customers in the way that they want to be serviced. Connecting them up with the messaging, connecting them up with the way in which the brand's portrayed, an incredibly important part of that and hopefully immersing them. And I've seen some really interesting models within an outsource environment where you might have a big outsourcer that has half a dozen brands that it might service for a particular type of product or in this case service. And yet when you do the customer experience scores, you find one in particular that seems to have much higher scores, even though it's the same people answering the calls and dealing with the emails and what have you. And usually the thing that I find about that is, is that they've taken the trouble to really embed the brand in the team, you know, and spend time with the brand guys coming in and, and indeed the HR people and, and, and talking to people about what the company is there to do and, and the role that they want it to play. And, and I've seen that to be very effective. No, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I think that very often, you know, we, we have really unrealistic hopes for, you know, what we're hoping people will do to, to, to bring our brand to life without ever really giving them much of a clue as to what it was we wanted them to do. I mean, again, take another example from St. James's Place. In the earlier days, uh, all the admin for SJP was all outsourced to Scottish Amicable up in uh, in Stirling in Scotland, who did all the back office work. And, and indeed, the, the team up there working on SJP weren't even dedicated to SJP. I mean, they were the Scott Am team, and about every third case that came in was an SJP case. I mean, what, what, what chance was there that they were going to, you know, behave in a particular, you know, distinctive, recognisable way? When nobody ever came and saw them, nobody talked to them, they had no idea what the SJP brand was supposed to stand for. And then the cases that they were dealing with either side of the SJP case, you know, were Scottish amicable branded and uh, dealing with a completely different corporate organisation. I mean, hadn't got a chance. Mm. Hadn't got a chance. I mean, in the end, we, we, we established a, a dedicated SJP team up there at, uh, at Craigforth and uh, spent some time with them and gave them some inductions into the brand and so on. And things got much better. I think a lot of people within organizations who are sort of expected to kind of deliver the brand, you know, feel a sense of sort of, you know, frustration and grievance that they haven't really got a chance. Yeah, no, okay. That, that makes a lot of sense. So, I mean, just to summarize and, and tell me if I'm wrong in summarizing this, I, if I could simply sort of almost redraw the brand pyramid in my mind, it, it's clarity of purpose, which obviously is at the top of your pyramid anyway. Unpacking that into three values you know if you can if you can get something down into a, a, a very small number that people have got a, a chance of getting their heads around and then you know distinctiveness and personality thinking that through and being very very clear about it and then it, it almost feels to me about the, the rest of it that it's it's all then about finding the correct transmission mechanisms to be able to get to your customers but with an essence of that organizing thought or that personality left in it even if it's digital as long as you've got a little element of that in it by the time it gets to them then um, hopefully you're onto something there in terms of what they actually feel and see and, and might be able to distinguish between that organization and, and another one that might be doing something very similar you know i agree with all that i mean i think that uh, in, in most of financial services what one of the advantages that organizations have got is that if you leave aside probably high street banking right, maybe you don't even leave that aside maybe include it the, the huge majority of organizations have got very small market shares they're in very crowded markets with lots of organizations in them and they've got probably, you know, single-digit percentage market shares. Now, that might not sound like a very good thing, but in one way, it is a good thing because it means that you can be really quite distinctive and particular 
and specific in your targeting and still grow your business dramatically. You know, if you've got a 3% market share, then getting to 6% is completely transformational. But that still only means that 6 in 100 people have to choose you. Or put it another way, 94% can reject you. And from a branding point of view, that's fantastic because it means you can really rely quite strongly on distinctiveness to kind of pull you through. The frightening thing is when you're in a situation of having 33% of the market and you more or less have to be everything to everybody. And then yeah. you're in a tough spot. Then you're in a tough spot. Then, then making a really compelling brand is not impossible, but it's very hard. No, no, I understand we what you're have, saying. We, have, we all have this great blessing of being in niche businesses, which allow us to develop strong and distinctive brands to uh, make a real difference to our performance. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and maybe just a, a final point that is, you know, when you get to the big market share status or anything else, customer experience and the consistent delivery against that promise, that brand promise, if you want to call it that, and that, that purpose becomes ever more important because at that point, that kind of becomes the thing that sustains it. But I guess you've got to be on the right track to start with. Yeah, yeah, cool. Okay, thank you for that. Final couple of questions, if I may, just, and these are quick fire ones, just to sort of, I ask everyone this at the end so that we can get a, a, just a fix on a couple of things. So just really, I mean, what do you think being truly customer-centric means to you? Yeah, what does it mean? I, I read a very interesting paper a little while ago, which challenged some of the things I previously have Said, for example, I'd probably have come up with the old cliche about exceeding expectations. And the thing I read, I can't even remember. Did you did you show, send it to me? I can't remember. Somebody sent it to me. So that's a really bad idea because all it does is mean that you get into inflation of expectations. So they expect even more from you next time. Mm-hmm. It might be me. Yeah, <laughs> it might be in a Harvard article I read actually. Yes, um, on on the whole thing about effort. Yeah, really interesting idea. Yeah, I mean. And what can I say? What can I say? I mean, you know, it's it's not rocket science. I mean, you know, it's not rocket science. I, I, I don't know if I've got a good answer to you on this question. As customers, we just want things to work. And I think that, you know, very often we concern ourselves very much with trying to get to sort of second base, third base, fourth base, do the clever stuff with delivery that just doesn't really work. We don't want to be lied to as customers. We don't want to be told that our call is important to you. It, it obviously isn't. It just isn't. You're lying. <laughs> yeah. we, we don't want to be lied to, and we want our experience to work. And, and then worry about all the clever stuff later. I don't know. I, I, wish, I wish I got a better answer for you. No, no. I, it's a perfectly good answer. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, sometimes it is as simple as that. An example of a great experience that you've had, I mean, you talked about the Coots example, and that's obviously uh, a very distinct market and a very distinct sort of service thing. Any other sort of more mainstream things that you can think of that you've kind of thought, yeah, that was wow for me, really good? Just just to come back to that one for a minute and then yeah. sort of build on it, one of the great things about the Coots experience is that it's a fantastic example of, of the obvious point that you get what you pay for. And the thing about it is, is that compared to you know, vanilla banking, it, it is quite a bit more expensive. Yeah. And, and, you know, my goodness, you know, personally, and, you know, my wife as well, you know, we're happy to pay that. I mean, if you ask me, you know, what is the best money that I spend every year, I'd probably say it's the money that I spend on that banking service. Right, okay. You know, okay. because the quality of the experience is just so friction-free, you know, and they're so nice to me. 
you know, whatever it is, a couple hundred quid. I mean, I'd so pay that. Right. And, and I think there's a point there, again, about financial services, probably in other markets as well, which is that I still think in terms of customer experience, there's tremendous scope for offering services that offer higher quality and higher standards and charge us more. But the financial services world is, is really quite extraordinary in the sense that in great swathes of it, I haven't got the opportunity to pay more and get better. I can't do it. There is no better available. And on the whole, you know, when you can, we, we like paying more to get something better. If I go out for a meal, I don't say, right, where's the cheapest meal in London? <laughs> you know, I need a new shirt. What is the cheapest shirt on the market? You know, this fanatical, you know, enthusiasm about cheapness is not something we bring to, you know, the rest of our lives. But in financial services, as a general rule, you get what you pay for. And on the whole, I'm very happy to pay a bit more in many areas. So, yeah, so, I mean, that that's, uh, yeah, that's my answer. Give me more premium services. Yeah, okay, perfect. An example of a, a, a terrible experience you might have had that's really stuck in your mind where you've just, I mean, you you. you ground out the uh, the we're very happy to uh, be taking your call and that would apply to a number of organizations but can you think of one maybe without necessarily naming the organization but uh, anything yeah, I'll terrible you, well, I'll, I'll tell you i won't name the organization but i'll, I'll tell you i mean the, the thing about you know customer experience which is really tough and it's terribly unfair but it's still a fact is that your customer experience is judged by your worst experience. You may be brilliant 90% of the time, but, you know, let it slip, you know, just once, and the customer may well never forgive you. And this is a very quick example of that. Many years ago, when I was a very young man, I was uh, about to start a new job where I was able to choose a really rather rather flash company car back in the days of company cars. And in the week or so before I started the new job, I had a lovely time going around several car showrooms, test driving some really quite flash cars and deciding which one I wanted in the new job. So I, I like cars. I'm a bit of a petrol head. And uh, there was one particular car showroom in the Finchley Road in northwest London. And I won't mention the name of the brand where they had a car that I wanted to go and have a look at. So I went up there to see it. And it was a horrible afternoon. It was pouring with rain. And I went up on the bus and walking into the showroom, I got extremely wet. And there was this nice car. And I, I don't suppose I did look terribly reputable. And I probably did look very wet. And I might not necessarily have looked like their, their target driver. But uh, I went over to this car I was interested in and sort of kicked the tires for a minute or two. No one paid any attention to me. And after a few minutes, the manager came out of the office and came over to me and said, rain stops, honey, you're, off you go. <laughs> And at that moment, I promised that for the rest of my life, I live to be 100, I will never, ever, ever own that brand of car. Wow. And wow. that's, I don't know, 50 years, 40, 40 years yeah, ago yeah. now. Yeah. And I never have owned that brand of car, and I never will. And my wife never has. And I tell other people that the story, and some of them say, I won't own one either. And, you know, I don't know what that, I don't know what that moment has cost them. Mm. Not, not a great deal in the great scheme of things, but it's cost, you know, quite a lot of thousands of pounds just for, you know, one moment of inattention in dealing with a customer. Great example. 
and you're not one to hold a grudge either, which is good. So, uh, yeah. And final, final question. What do you think is the one thing that you've learned in these many, many years of, of doing what you do that you could never have been taught at a business school? This might be a slightly depressing answer, perhaps. But uh, the thing that you don't really learn about anywhere except through experience is, you know, what generally, I suppose, comes under the heading of, of office politics. Right. Just how organizations work, how you've got to figure out, you know, who the decision maker really is and where the budget's held and why that person seems to be so against what you're saying and how you get round the obstruction being created, and how do you get the HR director on side, you know, all that personal stuff, you know, because, I mean, in the end, for most of us in business, it's not the quality of our ideas or our intellect or whatever that, that makes us successful. You know, it, it's our ability to negotiate our way through organizations. Mm is the most important thing of all. And I don't think anyone teaches you that. No, interesting point. Stakeholder engagement, I guess you'd put that under as a management category, but um, yeah, I guess I it's a lot more intricate than that, isn't it? So yeah, lovely. Lucy, and thank you very much indeed for that. Thank you for giving up so much time to talk to us today about that. I've, I've, great, yeah, I've greatly enjoyed the, uh, the conversation, but also some really strong analogies, but also similarities with the way in which certainly we as an organization go about helping other organizations to manage customer experience so thanks for that and um yeah it's been a real pleasure thank you very much thank you thanks very much for listening today if you found that useful please give us a like on whatever platform you're listening to us on and if you'd like to know more you can find us at penpartnership.com or you can follow pen partnership on linkedin until next time goodbye